small disclaimer before we get into the first story. Um, the story takes place in Rwanda, and while I tried my absolute best to find the correct pronunciation for certain words, places, names, phrases, whatever, I am only one person, and not everyone's perfect. So, I apologize if my pronunciations are not up to par, but I did try my best, I promise. Now, <laughs> let's get into tonight's video. Editor's Note I discovered the following survivor testimony while conducting research at the Genocide Archive of Rwanda in Kigali. I've translated it from the original Kinyarwanda. The names have been changed, and I've added translations of common terms and acronyms. I tore a strip of cloth off my shirt and wrapped it around my sister's eyes. Can you see anything? I asked. No? How come I can't look? We're going to play a game. Keep your eyes closed until I tell you. Not even a peek. If you can do that until we get to the path home, you win. I grabbed her by the hand and led her forward. She made hesitant, shuffling steps. I brought her to the top of a hill that overlooked the church. She stumbled on a root and the noise scattered a wake of surprised vultures. Directly below us, lit by the bright midday sun, was a sea of rotting bodies. There were hundreds of corpses, all left in the brutal positions of their violent deaths. Many had sharp, horizontal cut marks across their faces and bodies, while others had cracked skulls and broken bones. The front doorway of the church was packed with an overflow of bodies that spilled out into the courtyard. We inched our way through this field of the dead. I tried my best not to look into their faces or at their injuries, but there were so many dead that I had to look just to keep my footing. Eric, what's that smell? She asked. It's so awful. It makes me feel sick. There's a pile of dead cows, I said. I think someone slaughtered them and forgot them here. Keep your blindfold on. We're almost home. We kept walking until I found the dusty road that led us home. I was only too happy to put the church behind us. You won! I took off Cynthia's blindfold. I know, she replied with a confident smile. I always win your games. We followed the path, and half an hour later we were in our front yard. We went inside, checked every room, but the house was empty. Eric, where's Dad? My sister asked. I don't know, he's probably in a meeting. Our father was an important man. He was the burgomaster, or mayor, of the surrounding area and had many responsibilities. He's had a lot of meetings lately, especially in the days after someone shot down the president's plane. Mom said that dad was part of a group called Hutu Power, or Hutu Power. He spent a lot of time talking with soldiers and police and organizing and training the Interhamway youth militia. Okay, and where's mom? I don't know, I said. Probably with dad. I knew this to be a lie. The last time I saw mom, she said she was headed for the church. She said we should meet her there and that we'd be safe there. We were always safe at the church, she reminded me, and the current troubles were no different. 
I try not to think about it, but I assumed she was part of the massacre we passed through earlier. I remember clearly the very last thing she said to me. Eric, take care of your sister and do not trust your father. Since Dad was a politician, he had party connections, giving us a pretty nice house. We had a generator and plumbing, many rooms, and metal sheeting on our roof. Our home was built near the top of a hill, which allowed us to see a great distance. Looking out the front window, I couldn't spot a single person. I could see plumes of smoke coming from a dozen homes scattered across the valley and surrounding hills. I heard the rat-tat-tat of a machine gun, and I ducked, but it was too far away to be a real threat. What should we do now? My sister asked. Let's just wait until someone comes home, I said. I didn't know who that someone would be. I knew that if Mom was somewhere back at the church, then the only person who would come home was Dad. I had to remember what Mom said. I didn't know what he was capable of. So, we waited. A week went by and no one came out to our home. We had dried food, stuff in cans, and there were cassava and bananas outside. Not to mention the cows and our one goat. Our only source of outside information came from RTLM, Radio Television Libre de Smili Colleen. The news was seldom comforting. He repeatedly reminded us that the enemy was on the outskirts, poised to attack, and that soon they were going to take power and kill us all. The announcer said, We are going through difficult times, through a war imposed by the RPF, those stubborn, proud, and contemptuous Inkatanyi, or the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Who are the Inkatanyi? my sister asked. You're the Tutsi army in the north, I said. Are they going to hurt us? No, of course not. I messed up her hair. We're safe here. Mom said she was a Tutsi, but that dad was a Hutu. So what are we? I looked at a family photo of the four of us. My mom and I were both taller than my dad, and Sonia, despite her age, was rapidly approaching his height. We are Tutsi, I said. No, no more questions. Go play in your room while I make supper. Later that evening, I felt a sharp, sudden pain in my skull. I had to sit down to stop from falling over. I felt my sister grab my arm and whisper, Eric, there's a Zungu in the kitchen. Zungu meaning white person. We both tiptoed up to the kitchen door and peeked our heads in. In the evening twilight, it was hard to make out the details. I could see that he was facing from us and that he wore a khaki camouflage uniform and a blue helmet. I could see the letters U-N-A-M-I-R on his back, but I didn't know what they meant. His uniform looked dirty and bloodstained and covered in slash marks from a long blade. I noticed vicious wounds along his ankles like someone had hacked away at his Achilles tendons. Sonia, hide! I whispered, and she took off into her room. I waited till she was away. Hello? 
I called, ready to bolt if the mantle which has moved. But he didn't move. He stood completely still. Hello? I said again. What are you doing here? Still nothing. He was like a statue. Or a corpse. I didn't see him breathe. My dad is on the way home, I said with as much authority as I could muster. He's the burgomaster and he won't like you snooping around here. Still, no reaction. I heard Sonia behind me whisper, Tell them to go away. I turned around and saw that she clutched a teddy bear to her chest. Sonia, get away from here. When I turned back, the man was gone. I checked the adjoining rooms and looked out the windows, but he was nowhere to be seen. I called for Sonia and found her in her room, cowering under her bed. I think he's gone. Who was that? She asked. I don't know. Maybe he was looking for Dad. The next night, the Interahamwe came. There were a dozen of them, mostly teenagers, each brandishing a machete or a spiked club. I heard them before I saw them. They were shouting and laughing. I heard them smash a beer bottle against the side of the house. I ran to my sister. Sonia, hide in your room and don't come out until I say. I heard a window smash, and I crawled into an empty cupboard. One of the militia wrenched on the front door, but it was locked. I heard muffled shouting from outside. Anyone in there? We're looking for Tootsies. We heard there is some hiding in this area. I heard banging on the other side of the house and the crash of another window breaking. I thought I could hear the crunch of glass and the sound of someone crawling through a broken window. Suddenly, I was blinded by a massive headache behind my right eye. As soon as it stopped, there was silence outside. I heard confused murmuring, and someone said, Is that a Zungu? An unsteady voice said, What's wrong with his face? I heard a crack of gunfire, and then shouting. Someone else exclaimed in terror, What's in his mouth? What the hell is it doing? Followed by guttural sounds of agony. It sounded like a mountain gorilla was outside tearing people apart. When the noises stopped, I slowly crept out of the cupboard and looked out of the shattered windows. In the distance, I could see a man on foot running for his life down the dusty path of our home. In the front yard was the scattered and dismembered remains of the Interahamway. Body parts were strewn around haphazardly. On the outskirts of the property, I saw the white man from the kitchen. He was facing away from me, and he didn't move. He looked the same as before, but now his hands glistened with fresh blood. I heard the cry of our goat and turned my attention toward the sound, and when I looked back, the man was gone. I broke away from the window to find Sonia. She was shaking in fear under her bed, but I told her the men were gone. She refused to budge until I brought her a teddy bear. The next morning, I told Sonia to stay inside and keep away from the windows. 
They'd broken all but one, and I cleaned up the glass shards as best I could. I dragged the dead into Rahamwe off the property and into a nearby pit. I covered them with a thick blanket of banana leaves. They killed one of our cows and set the rest free. I could see them wandering further down the hill, but I was too scared to go that far and fetch them. Our goat was still tied up in the back, and she complained bitterly. Where did all the men go? Sonia asked. You must have scared them off, I said. When they found that you were here, they fled like chickens. I saw the whole thing. You're teasing me, she rubbed her growling stomach. Eric, I'm really hungry. I slaughtered the cow and made a small fire. We ate like kings for the rest of the day. It was far too much for the two of us, and we had to waste a lot of it. Sonia asked, Do you think it was the same men who killed the cows back at the church? I think so, I said. Don't worry about them. We're safe here. Later on, I was cleaning up the kitchen when I felt a sharp pain in my head. I turned around, and the Zungu was back. He appeared the same as before, khaki uniform, blue helmet, grievously wounded, and again, he didn't face me. It's... it's you again. I trembled and my voice wavered. You fought off the Interhamwe. They would have killed us. He remained motionless. Why are you here? What do you want? Who are you? I asked a barrage of questions without the slightest reaction. Eric, who are you talking to? Sonia came behind me. It's Amazungu again. He's... When I turned back, he was gone. I went back to cleaning and saw something odd. The French word, La Revanche, spelled out in ashes on the kitchen counter. I brushed it off and continued tidying up. The next day, I was listening to the radio while Sonia played in her room. I went numb when I heard the familiar voice of our father. He said, We shall fight them and we will defeat them. That is a truth. If they do not pay attention, they will all be decimated. I've remarked it. They are in the minority. He went on in this vein for a while, complaining about Tutsis, the RPF, the United Nations. And then he said, And you people who live near Kaduha, go out. You will see an Inkatani house on the top of the hill. I think those that have guns should immediately go to these Inkatani, encircle them, and kill them. I was shocked. My blood ran cold. That was our house, he described. I just listened to our father give a bunch of killers directions to our home. There was no Inkatani here, just us. What was he thinking? This is what my mother warned me about. Within the hour, they started to arrive. Machete-wielding Interahamwe youths were soon joined by police and soldiers. They formed a circle around the house and waited. 
I heard the dull drone of a jeep approach and stop in our yard. Sitting in the passenger seat, my father raised his arms and stood above the crowd. Everyone cheered. Dad! Dad's here! I heard Sonia cry. She tried to run for the door, but I grabbed a handhold of her shirt and held her back. Wait, I said. We need to play another game. Hide from Dad. He's with the men who killed... I hesitated. The cows. He's with the men who killed the cows. He was wearing his finest suit, and when he spoke, a vein popped out of his bald forehead. Eric! Sonia! Come out, my children. Your father wishes to see you. I didn't move and held Sonia back. I know you're in there, he continued, and I know you're not alone. Are they holding you hostage? I heard they put up quite the fight the other day. I hate to think that my home was full of inyenzi. It means cockroaches. Sonia fought my grip and broke free. Eric, it's Dad. Let go of me. I lunged for her, but she was far too quick and ran out the front door. Sonia, my father exclaimed. He leaned over to whisper something to a uniformed man. Sonia ran over towards our father with her arms wide open. I yelled no and looked away. She didn't cry out and the machete sliced through her. When I looked back, she was a crumpled, bloodied heap on the ground at my father's feet. The uniformed man held the dripping weapon while my father stood there smiling like a jackal. Eric, son, come here. Your mother and sister are waiting for you. I collapsed behind the front door. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think. I could do nothing but tremble. And then I felt this massive migraine behind my right eye. I heard confusion outside. Someone said, What the hell is a Mazungu doing here? Panic screaming followed that seemed to come from all around the house. I heard a rapid burst of gunfire and exploding grenades shook the house. I saw a spray of blood splash up against our last broken window. Someone banged on the front door and pleaded, Please, please let me in. There's a demon out here. But then his voice gargled like his throat had been crushed and he stopped speaking. I waited an hour after the last terrified scream before I dared to look outside. The corpses of our attackers surrounded our home. Body parts were strewn everywhere. The most disturbing sight was that of my father. I found him propped up against his jeep. His groin was a maroon puddle of blood, and in his mouth I could see his own severed penis. I remember throwing up and sitting on the front step until dark, physically and mentally paralyzed. I was now alone in that big empty house. I cleaned up their bodies and dragged them to the same pit where the other corpses were hidden. I looked across every inch of the property for the body of my sister. I wanted to give her a proper burial, but I couldn't find her anywhere. 
lost track of time. My daily routine consisted of rationing my food and sitting alone waiting. Despite my craving to hear another human's voice, I did not listen to the radio again. Eventually, weeks or months later, I was rescued by a group of Inkatangi soldiers. Their commander said, Come with us. He said he'd bring me to a convoy of other refugees and that I was safe. Before leaving, I felt that familiar pain behind my eye. I turned to take in our home one last time, and in the doorway of our house, I saw the Mazungu. Beside him was my sister. She waved at me with one hand while holding her teddy bear with the other. I yanked on the soldier's arm and demanded him to stop, but when I looked back, the Mazungu and my sister both gone. Editor's note. Eric gave his testimony to agents of Midson Sans Frontiers in August of 94. After this date, I have no further documentation and I've been unable to track his whereabouts. Furthermore, I'm unable to pinpoint the identity of the UNA MIR peacekeeper. The man's uniform matches that of the Belgian paratroopers, the blue helmets. Additionally, the description of his injuries, especially to his Achilles tendon, suggests that he may be connected to a group of ten Belgian peacekeepers who were captured and executed by Hutu extremists. Furthermore, evidence found by prosecutors for the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda suggests that Eric's father may have been implicated in this execution. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It all started when my dog died. I'll call him George. George had been my best buddy ever since I had been 12, and as you can imagine, his passing left a deep hole in my heart. Even bigger than the one I dug out in my backyard to bury him. However, as people say, I was sure that one day I would move on from it. It was just that this process was taking far longer than I had thought. I still found it hard to get up in the morning, and I still found it hard to believe that I would never hear George's footsteps as he bounded into the house. I used to hate how he always make a mess walking in, but now I wanted nothing more than for him to walk in and tear the furniture to pieces one more time. In my grief, my sleeping pattern was pretty messed up. I ended up taking a nap after noon that lasted well into the evening, and as you can imagine, I didn't really feel like sleeping later on that night. I decided that maybe taking a walk would clear my mind a little. I didn't want to be in the house. It brought back memories of George. 
George and I would usually go and take a walk in the nearby park, so I went the other route. This one ended up leading through a cemetery, which was a bit unnerving, but I didn't want to turn back at that point. It was during this walk that I saw something I wasn't expecting. A large group of people gathered around in a circle off in the distance. At first, I thought it might be the local parent-teacher association, or PTA, meeting coming together. Though now that I look back on what I saw, that seems unlikely. After all, all of those people were wearing strange black cloaks and had this weird ornament around their necks. They were also wearing masks. Which, that's nothing weird in these times, but these completely hid their faces. They were also holding knives, and one of them was tied up and gagged. Not to mention, why would the PTA meet outside the school? That, too, in a cemetery at midnight. Yeah, they probably weren't the PTA, but I hadn't pieced that out at the time. So, yeah, I decided to walk at them and say, hello, thinking that some conversation might take my mind off things. One of them saw me approach and screamed, We've been found! Run! All at once, the gathered people scrambled away in random directions, even taking the man who had been tied up with them. I was rather upset, as you can understand, that those people were avoiding me. How rude do you have to be to run away right when you see someone? Anyway, I noticed something on the ground. It appeared that these people had dropped something in their hurry to get away from me. It was a rather thick book with the title written in a language whose letters I didn't recognize, so I assumed it might have been French. I had taken Spanish in school, you see, so I had no knowledge of French. Now, these people might have been rude to me, but I figured I should still return the book to them. The only thing was, I didn't know who any of these people were, and the book didn't have an owner mentioned on the cover. While it was definitely not a nice thing to do to go through someone else's belongings, this could have been someone's diary for all I knew. I did want to return it to its owner, and I had no clue as to who that was. And so I began reading it. The text inside was also in that strange language, but someone had scribbled out what I guessed were translations in English. The handwriting even seemed a little familiar, but I chose to ignore it at the moment as my attention got to a page about something called necromancy. Apparently it was possible to bring back to life someone, or something, as a zombie. It immediately piqued my interest, as it meant that I might be able to see George again. I decided that I could hold back on giving the book back. I wanted to see if it was possible to bring back my dog first. I was sure whoever owned the book didn't need it back urgently or anything. Of course, I wanted to be sure about what I was doing. I called my local veterinarian's office the next morning to ask about his medical opinion on bringing back an animal with dark magic, but I was swiftly disconnected. Sadly, both the WHO and the CDC didn't have any information on this, so I just decided to go ahead with it. Now... The whole thing required some ingredients which I couldn't exactly find on Amazon or even eBay, so I took some time to gather them together. When I was done, and the next new moon rolled around, I stood outside over George's grave and read out the incantation written in the book after I placed the regents over the grave. At first, nothing happened. 
so I was kind of disappointed. But then I heard something. It sounded like muffled scratching beneath the earth. I began clearing it off, and eventually came up a wriggling paw, and a while later I'd unearthed George. He was a bit decomposed, but surprisingly didn't smell at all. He barked happily as he saw me, and I saw recognition in his eyes. Yeah, there were a couple of issues. For one, George seemed to reject anything that I wanted to feed him. He was undead, so I wasn't sure if this was an issue. Secondly, he was a lot more aggressive. At times, he tried to bite my head. He never succeeded, though. But I just thought the aggression was a side effect of having been buried. After all, I think I'd be a bit cranky, too, if I was buried underground for a few weeks. I decided to ignore these small flaws and instead spend as much time as I wanted with George. (laughs) I cannot describe to you how amazing it was to finally be with him after having lost him. It felt as if I was whole again. Aside from a few violent outbursts, he was just as playful as he had always been. While it was nice playing around with George, I remembered the book and the fact that I was supposed to return it. See, I had said that I sort of recognized the handwriting. I thought it belonged to my neighbor, who I'll call John, and so I showed up at his house holding the book. Here, John, I I think you dropped this, I said. Immediately, his face went into shock, and he vehemently denied owning it. This is your handwriting, right? I pointed out. He said no, and that it must be a mistake, and that I should take the book away and leave. He kept looking around frantically as if afraid that someone might be watching us. Alright, if you don't want it. I then paused. But I should thank you for this. I mean, I managed to get my dog back thanks to this. His eyes widened as I explained what I'd done and he began to freak out even more asking to see my dog. I complied. After all, John had played with George before. I took John to visit George, and John began to freak out for some reason. I thought he'd be happy to see George again, but he didn't share my joy at having my pet back. I think this is what set George off, because he's normally such a friendly dog, but he went ahead and bit John on the leg. It was a shallow bite, and I offered to wash it with some soap and water before driving him to get a rabies shot, but John sprinted away at that point, and I had to hold George back to prevent him from attacking John. I got that John was kind of rude to George, but still, I didn't want my dog to hurt John anymore. The next day, I got a call from John's number, but it was his wife. I'll call her Jane. She told me how John had been acting weird ever since he'd come see me with George, and she was asking if he had taken drugs or something. I asked her what he was doing that was so weird, and she said that his skin was now grayer, and he'd bitten her last night in bed. I told her I thought that was kind of kinky and not what I would be comfortable with, but if it was what the two of them wanted to do, I had no real business judging them for it. For some reason, she got frustrated when I said this and she hung up on me. Things have gotten progressively weirder over the weeks since then, guys. My town's been put on lockdown for the past three days. I thought it was the virus that's been going around the whole world lately, but it seems to be something different. 
People have been whispering about zombies, but they've hushed up now that the military's been involved and has stationed troops here. I hear gunshots occasionally throughout the day, and so I had to move George inside since he gets agitated easily by loud sounds. I won't lie. I'm getting kind of scared now. I haven't heard from John or Jane for a couple of days, and they aren't picking up their phone. I can't help but feel that somehow I might be responsible for all that's happening. But even if there is a zombie apocalypse, all zombies can't be bad, right? I mean... George is one, and he seems to be fine for the most part. I really hope the military doesn't feel like they need to take George away. That's what scares me the most. I can't stand losing him for a second time. What do you guys think I should do? Please, answer quickly. I think they might cut off our internet, and I'd like some advice before they do. Okay, that second story was a little silly, a little goofy, but it was a nice little uh, change of pace, especially after the first one. It also raises an interesting question. What would you do if the zombie apocalypse did start? Would you be someone who became a leader, like Rick Grimes, for example, or would you be someone, a different type of leader, like maybe Negan? I really liked The Walking Dead. It's the only show I could think of. Uh, or would you check out early? I think it's a valid, valid thing to uh, consider, given the state of things at that point in the world. I don't know. Let me know down in the comment section below. I'm really interested to hear what your, uh, your game plan would be. I'm also interested if we have any uh, doomsday preppers in the audience. Let me know. And now, we're going to get into tonight's final story. It's been roughly a year. That's how much time has passed since Jessica died. She was, and still remains, the love of my life. I thought that time would heal my wounds, but they instead grew with each passing moment I was forced to spend without her. I could bear the pain no longer, and had to make an abrupt and permanent change. I needed to run far, far away. I needed to run back to where it all began. We met in Asambu, Japan, three years before her untimely demise. I remember the day clearly, both meeting her and the horrible physical pain I suffered. My intention was to climb to the top of Mount Atobi. My father always painted quite the picture of this mountain from his youth, one that I longed to be a part of. Could have happened, too had I not slipped at the base of the mountain, effectively breaking my leg. Luckily, I had two locals with me at the time. They were to guide me through the rough terrain. Unfortunately, they could not prevent sheer idiocy. One stayed with me while the other went off for help. It would be a few hours before his return. Eventually, my aide came back with a beautiful woman by his side. She was slender, her hair was blonde, and she was American, much like myself. She came running to my aid and asked if I was okay. <laughs> it sounds cliche, and perhaps I was in shock from the excruciating pain, but... 
I was captivated by her. Her presence itself was enough to make me forget about my leg and my failed endeavor. Feeling lightheaded, I passed out before I could converse with her. I woke up the next day in a hospital bed in Sapporo, a long ways away from Mount Atobi. My leg felt better, and I had a large cast affixed to it. I looked around the room to get my bearings, and to my surprise, sitting by my side was the woman who had come to my rescue. I wondered if she had waited there the entire time I was out. Before I could ponder any further, her voice gently danced across my ears. You're awake. Marvelous. She seemed to be excited upon my awakening. I was happy too, but for different reasons. Her presence was very alleviating. Yeah, yeah. Did you wait with me this whole time? I was curious to know how long she'd been there. <laughs> Guilty as charged. I wanted to make sure you were okay. A bit of a worry ward. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you stayed. We ended up talking for hours. We laughed about my awkward descent at the base of the mountain. We talked about our families, our homes, and even our love lives. We talked about everything we could possibly think of. As it turns out, she lived in the United States, just one state away from me. And she was in a Subu to treat the locals who couldn't venture to nearby hospitals. She actually left medical school to pursue this line of work instead. Her kindness astounded me. There I was trying to conquer a mountain for my own personal benefit, while she was there to actually make a difference and help others. I was a fool in her shadow. But she still fell for me, just as I did for her. Despite her worldly ambitions, we both moved back to America and settled down. Love is the one thing powerful enough to make you forget the important things in life. It can also make you forget the importance of life itself, as well as its fleeting nature. After years of walking to her job at the local hospital safely, danger finally caught up to her. She was struck by a bus that was speeding down our street, and she died on impact. I told her time and time again that I would buy her a car, but she refused. She enjoyed her strolls through our quaint but bustling town too much. Walking to work gave her pleasure. This last walk took it all away. Not just from her, but from me. I now hate our home. I hate our town. I also hate public transportation. It was time for a change. I decided, just days after her funeral, to move to Asabu, Japan, where we first met. The transition was rather easy at first. My mind was focused on the move, and I actually felt like I was doing something good, something that was much needed and would benefit my well-being. I was even welcomed with open arms by the locals. Newcomers were a hot commodity around those parts, and a cause for celebration, as such, I was able to meet almost everyone in my small village-like community at once, right at my doorstep. It was nice. 
Soon after getting the locals, my joy was replaced with a feeling of dread. I sat in my small college alone and unwillingly allowed the death of my wife to pierce my very soul. It was almost unbearable, but not unexpected. I knew that I would have to mourn her death sooner or later, and I knew that I should. My first day in my new home was as good a time as any. The months passed, seasons changed. My time in Asabu was becoming a relatively easy routine to become accustomed to. Things were a little bit better, but it still wasn't the same without Jessica. I knew that it never would be. I pressed on knowing that this was probably as good as it would get for me. On a nightly stroll home from the local pub, however, my thoughts on the matter radically changed. I followed the glow of the lamppost as I made my way back home from the bar. I counted each one as I went. It wasn't an obsessive compulsive condition or anything. It was just something that I started doing that helped me pass the time. It also allowed me to keep track of the distance between the pub and my house. There were exactly 37 lampposts along the path home, spread roughly 20 feet apart from each other. By the time I reached the 18th post, I knew that I would be about halfway home. On the night in question, however, I didn't even make it that far. I reached the 11th post and saw something that stopped me in my tracks, something that I could not comprehend. There, 20 feet away from me near the 12th lamppost, was a shadowy figure. It was undoubtedly a woman, but I couldn't quite make out her features. I stopped walking due to the odd nature of the encounter. Never in the months that I lived in Asabu had I ever seen a single person on many walks home. Nobody else traversed the roads at night. There was never a single soul out this late other than myself. I was baffled. While privately contemplating, the woman stepped closer into the light. (sighs) This is when my jaw dropped. The woman was none other than my wife, Jessica. But how? It was impossible. I watched her casket as it was lowered into the earth, but there she was in all of her former beauty, staring at me from down the path. It was so surreal. I can't quite explain to you how it felt, but I'm sure if you've ever lost a significant other, you might be able to imagine the heavy knot I had in my chest. I didn't even get a chance to react properly before she spoke. Come. I didn't understand what was happening, so naturally I wanted answers. Jessica? How is this possible? You aren't alive. This this can't be real. Come. She voiced the same plea, unmoved by my curiosity. Come. I need you. Again, she reached out to me, seemingly in need of my company. 
I didn't know what to say or do, so I just stood there in an awestruck and confused manner while staring at her in utter disbelief. She vanished before my very eyes. What the hell? Was I seeing things? Dumbfounded and unwilling to walk any further into the direction where she had been, I ran back to the pub. I needed to talk to someone. Upon arriving at the pub's entrance, I swiftly stumbled through the doorway in a hurried and fearful fashion. My friends were still there and took notice to my arrival. I sat back down with them and immediately opened up about my wife's death, something I had never told anyone about. None of them interrupted me while I spoke. I then continued by telling them about what happened during my walk home. I expected at least one of them to crack a joke about how drunk I must have been, but they all remained silent. I too became quiet, waiting for a reaction. They all looked at each other very seriously before offering me some surprising insight. It sounds like you ran into a kid soon. What? I had no clue what they were talking about. What's a kitsune? I looked to my bar buddies for answers as they seemed to know a lot more than I did on the subject. I listened intently while they explained. Apparently kitsune is a term found in Japanese folklore. It's used to describe a fox spirit that can shapeshift, fooling its victims into thinking it is human. One of my friends at the bar said that they fed on human blood, much like vampires. Another one of my friends said fox spirits had the ability to bend space and time at will. The bartender chimed in and said that a kitsune can possess its victims as well as breathe fire like a dragon. Their opinions were mixed, but they all agreed on one thing. All kitsune have tails. They cannot hide them, even after shape-shifting. This is how I could identify it, if it ever crossed paths with me again. I spent a little more time at the pub talking about the kitsune before taking off. I didn't know exactly what to believe upon departing. I never gave much credence to the supernatural, but it seemed that it was the only answer. The thing that I saw was either the ghost of my wife or fox spirit trying to lure me into some devious trap. After arriving home from a less eventful walk, I decided to do a little research. I stayed up all night on my computer in the hopes of solving the mystery. I found that kitsune often take on the form of a beautiful woman to lure its victims off into the night. This lined up with my encounter. However, I found nothing about it taking on the form of a deceased loved one. This made me think that it might have been Jessica's ghost. There was, of course, a third possibility. Maybe, internally, I wasn't coping with her death as well as I thought I was. Maybe I was slowly going insane and just seeing what I wanted to see. Something that was not there. I found myself on the fence, unable to lean toward any of the possibilities I'd come up with. No matter which one it might have been, forgetting it ever happened seemed to be in my best interest. 
days, weeks, months, even years passed since that night I saw Jessica standing in the road. My friends didn't ask about it again, and I didn't bother bringing it up in conversation. I wanted to forget. And so I did. I continued to walk the streets at night, but never saw her. Sometimes I would think about what happened, but just as a passing thought, nothing more. Obsessing over it would be easy to do in my grieving condition, so I let my mind stray far away from the subject. I had almost destroyed the memory completely. Until one night when it came creeping back up to the surface. On my way back home from another night out at the pub, I counted the lampposts like I always did. After reaching the eleventh one, I saw her again. It was merely a silhouette at first, but I knew it was her. She was standing where she had been when I first saw her years before. She terrified me just the same, but why? Why wait so long to come back? I was convinced that I was not going crazy at this point. Such a lapse in incidents wasn't logical. She had to be a ghost or a kid soon. Before I could think further on the matter, she stepped into the light and spoke. Come. I stood still and remained silent, feeling safe at a distance. I need you. You have to follow me. She began moving in my direction. I no longer felt safe. Perhaps it was my overwhelming curiosity, or maybe I was in shock, but I could not move even an inch to help myself. During her elegant stride, she continued to speak. Isn't this what you want? Don't I make you happy? I remained unfazed by her words, but somehow captivated by her beauty. We can be together again. She took her final step in my direction, landing herself smack dab in front of me. I could now see every one of her features. She wore the same dress that she was buried in and sent a chill up my spine. I brushed it off and kept observing. Her face harbored a smile, not an eerie grin of sorts, but a pleasant smile. It was one that I'd seen her give me many times. Maybe this was my Jessica. I looked her up and down multiple times. Everything looked right. The skin, the hair, the birthmarks, everything. Even a shapeshifter could not imitate such fine details. She opened her mouth again and spoke. Come. She turned around and began walking forward. I looked down toward her posterior and noticed something that confirmed my suspicions. There was no tail. If I was not convinced before, I was now. This was my Jessica after all. I couldn't believe it, but I forced myself to anyway. She was here, or at least her ghost was, and we could finally be together again. I didn't care where she was bringing me as long as she would stay. I was delighted to no end. I followed Jessica in an elated yet befuddled march. She started walking the way that I would normally go to get home. After a while, though, she took a turn. 
This eventually led us to the nearby forest. I'd never ventured that far. Even when walking off the beaten path. Even so, I did not care. My wife was with me once again, and that is all that mattered. At the edge of the woods, Jessica stopped. While facing the forest, she spoke to me. Will you come with me? I would follow her to the ends of the earth, so there was no need for such a question to be asked. Of course, Jessica, I'll follow you anywhere. I love you. She stood completely still for a few moments before responding. Good. Then we can begin. She went to take her first step into the forest, and I noticed something pop out the back of her dress. I didn't know what it was at first, but as I continued to stare at it, I realized that it was furry. Then I realized that it was a tail. A goddamn tail. This was not my Jessica. This was a kitsune. I began backing away from it, unsure of how to proceed. Where are you going? You said you would come with me. You said you loved me. The kitsune took a step back away from the forest and turned around. I became frightened of her once again. Still, I stood my ground. I'm not going anywhere. You are not my wife. I was firm in my statement, but I lacked the courage to back it up. You will regret this. The Kitsune was now aware of the revelation I'd had. I watched in horror as its head morphed from that of my beautiful Jessica into that of a fox. The transformation was grotesque and extremely unsettling to watch. The end result was a very oversized fox head on top of what still appeared to be my wife's body. I knew not how to react. I probably should have run, but I continued to watch as the malicious spirit attempted to devour me for lack of a better term. It opened its mouth wider than you could possibly imagine, revealing a plethora of sharp teeth as well as some protruding tentacle-like extremities. On top of this, an aura of swirling black energy now surrounded its body. And this is when I felt the suction. I could feel myself being pulled toward the kitsune. It started off slow but quickly became stronger. I attempted at the very least to stay still, but it was no simple task. Everything I could see in my field of vision was being pulled forward. The grass, the rocks, and dirt were all being ripped away by this monstrous gust of wind. Some trees even toppled over because of it. It was like a storm, the likes of which I'd never seen or felt before. I knew that I would be the next one to be swept away by it if I didn't act fast. I managed to turn myself around and began fighting back. I fell to the ground, dug my nails into the earth. I crawled against the wind, hoping that I still had a chance to get away. It became increasingly difficult to do this, but somehow I was able to keep going. Eventually, I felt the tension break. It was like coming up to the surface quickly after being underwater. I'd made it out of the fox's grasp. I was free. I ran and ran, hoping the spirit would not follow. I eventually made it home. I trudged inside, panting, and locked the door behind me. I drew my blinds, locked the windows, and shut myself in my bedroom. I hid there for a few hours before finally falling asleep. 
I didn't recall lying down, but I remembered exhaustion beginning to outweigh my fear. Passing out was inevitable. During my impromptu nap, I dreamt. In my dream, I saw Jessica. We were in Paris, it seemed, as I could see the Eiffel Tower off in the distance. She'd always wanted to go there, but our time together was cut short before we had the chance to. At least in my dreams, we could still travel the world. She looked so happy. I knew it was a dream, but I still felt like she was actually there with me. We walked down the streets of Paris together, holding hands as we went. We exchanged no words. In fact, there was no sound in my dream at all. I noticed the lack of sound, but it in no way took away from the experience. Occasionally, Jessica would look over at me with that beautiful smile of hers, happy to have a dream of her realized. I was happy too. Unfortunately, happiness is a temporary emotion. As my dream continued, Jessica noticed a vendor cart on the side of the road. It was being run by an older gentleman. He motioned for us to come over. Jessica looked at me in excitement and pulled me toward the cart. Upon closer inspection, I noticed that the vendor was selling canneries that were being housed in small cages. I found this to be odd, but it was my dream, so who was I to judge? Out of nowhere, a fox jumped up onto the cart and knocked over one of the cages. It fell to the ground and became open in the process. The fox then grabbed the cannery in its mouth and ran off. Jessica was devastated. The look in her eye when this happened was a mixture of indescribable sadness and shock. Even though it was only a dream, I felt the need to do something. I ran after the fox as quickly as I could, but somehow it managed to stay ahead of me. I kept running until eventually we reached the base of the Eiffel Tower. This is where the fox stopped. Just as it did, my dream became unmuted. I heard all of the sounds of the bustling city at once. As such, I looked around at the world that my mind had created. It was breathtaking. I turned back to the fox, but it was gone. In its place was Jessica. She stared at me with a very troubled expression. For the first time in my dream, she spoke. Save me. Immediately after she said this, a bus came from her left and struck her at a very high speed. It was just like her death in real life, and I was stunned. Just a great sense of unease set in. I woke up. Just barely coming to my senses, I realized that there was a very loud, banging noise coming from my bedroom door. It seemed that I was not alone. The thunderous sound continued for a few more seconds before stopping. I heard Jessica's voice when it did. Let me in. We will be happy again. With one more loud bang, the door flew open, revealing that the fox-headed monstrosity was behind it. It charged toward me with alarming speed and grabbed me by the neck. It held me up against the headboard of my bed, and it opened its mouth. I could feel it pulling me in again. I could feel its energy. Worst of all, all I could think about was the look in Jessica's eyes right before the bus hit her. That would probably be my last fleeting thought before dying. 
I awoke in a cold sweat moments before becoming a goner. I'd still been dreaming. Thankful, but still in a mental frenzy, I jumped up and opened my bedroom door. There was nothing behind it. I looked around my room, under my bed, and in my closet, and I found nothing. The kid soon did not follow me home, it seemed. I sighed in relief. The monster was gone, but repercussions of my dream were still affecting me. I fell to my knees in dismay. It might sound a bit weird, but I think I may have fully come to terms with my wife's death that night. And so, here I am, almost a year later. Despite what happened, I still call my quaint village in Asabu, Japan, home. There's just something about it that makes me stay. It could be because it is where I met my wife, or perhaps it is the overlooking mountain that my dad used to talk about when I was younger. Either way, I won't be leaving anytime soon. As for the kid soon, I have not seen it since our last meeting. I haven't even discussed my experience with my buddies at the pub. I think it's best to simply forget and come to peace with the ordeal. I do, however, wonder if I'll see the spirit again on one of my late night strolls. I suppose the only thing I can do is hope that I will not. Who knows? Maybe it's already moved on to its next unsuspecting victim. One thought does cross my mind from time to time. What if the fox spirit was my Jessica all along? What if upon dying she somehow became a kitsune? Sounds absurd, I know, but it's a good explanation, isn't it? Maybe I should have followed her in the woods that night. Maybe I could have been happy with her, despite what she had become. Maybe we actually could have been together again after all of the years that we'd been apart. Perhaps. Perhaps we still can. That is the loudest plane I've ever heard in my life. Is it, is it touching down in my backyard? Okay. <laughs>